We're going to start off this morning with an excerpt from the Jesus Storybook Bible for kids. Let me read this story to you. This it says this. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait. Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. And one of the things that sticks out to me in that piece right there, it says Jesus is the missing piece in the puzzle that makes a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture is made by Jesus. I think back in the beginning as God is creating everything, he creates everything with goodness and he creates everything with beauty. But it's amazing to me is how easily Satan can use those same things to tempt Adam and Eve, right? And so here you are in the beginning, and Satan through the serpent says, did God really say you couldn't eat of anything in the garden? And she says, well, he says that we can eat of anything except for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan says, the serpent says, God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so in Genesis, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate. And just like that, it changed. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve to sin. And God puts in place the plan to restore that which was lost. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there's the prophecy right there. And then you move forward. And now here comes the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah 9, 6 says, for to us, a child is born and a son is given. A child will be born and a son will be given to us. And then later in Isaiah, and remember, this is 700 years before Jesus, he says in Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about this one who was to come that we would even desire. 
There's nothing beautiful about him in our eyes. We had lost a sense of who this person was and the beauty of who he was. And in fact, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The question is, what is God going to do to stop this evil? How is he going to do it? The answer is, you go low. The answer is, you go low. And so what I want to do today is I want to pick up this story and I want to look at the one who came here for us and to look at one of the last things he did before he died. It's this right here that we see and how Jesus shows us the beauty, true beauty of humility. I call this the true beauty of Christmas. The true beauty of of Christmas. And we're going to look at how God is found in the place where we least expect him. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to hear from you, Lord. Father, speak to us through your word today, and we pray that we would develop and have a new appreciation of love for who you are and that we would leave here changed people, Lord. And I ask this and we pray this, Father, all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at John 13, right? Everybody's favorite Christmas passage, right? John 13, 1 through 17. John 13, 1 through 17, it says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so here it is. So before we actually dig into Scripture, let me just give you a little background on what's happening. This is about, for the, for the last month of Jesus' life, Jesus is continually going lower and his disciples are trying to go high. Right? And so Jesus is moving closer and closer toward the humiliation of the cross. And so how do we see this? Well, for example, you look in Mark 9, and here they are. The disciples are on the road talking amongst themselves. No, excuse me. Fighting amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest when this kingdom comes. And when they get to where they're going, Jesus says to them, what were you talking about on the road? And nobody said anything. Because they had been fighting over who was going to be greatest. And Jesus says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then you look in Matthew 20, and James and John, mother, comes to Jesus and says, Grant 
that my one son will be on your left and my other son will be on your right when you come into your kingdom. Now imagine how well that went over with the other disciples, right? Their mother is going and doing the bidding for them to be in the place of honor, highest honor, second place of honor with Jesus, right? And Jesus says, whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now here we are at the Last Supper. The place of the highest honor is on Jesus' left. The second place of highest honor is on Jesus' right. John, the apostle, is on Jesus' right. Who do you think is on Jesus' left in the place of honor? It's Judas. You see, he and Peter had been arguing over who was going to sit there. And Jesus rebukes them. Peter takes the seat across from Jesus, which explains why when Jesus says that one of them is going to betray him, Peter, looking across the table at John, says, Ask him who. And so John whispers in his ear, who is it going to be? And he says, the one who I dipped this piece of bread, and he gives it to Judas. And so here is the seating arrangement at this last supper. Now remember this, and remember how the world works. Access means power. And now they all want to sit next to Jesus, because if I have access to him, then I have power. This is the thought process of the disciples as we're getting closer and closer to what Jesus is going to do. And that's where we pick up the story right now. And so we're at the Last Supper. Jesus knew that he was about to leave this world and go back to who? His father. And at the time that he was getting ready to do this, he was loving. He was loving to the very, very end. I don't know about you, but if I know I'm about to be humiliated in the worst way possible, loving you guys is probably the last thing I'm going to want to feel like doing right now, right? But here he is. He can't not love people, and he's loving his own to the very, very end. His public ministry was over, and he knew what was about to come, and he spent his time serving his disciples and preparing them for what was about to happen. Now, the devil had put into Judas's heart what he was going to do. But the scripture says that God gave him complete charge over everything, which explains why Jesus could say, nobody takes my life. I lay down my life on my own because his father had given him charge over everything that was about to happen. And here we are at supper, and Jesus now goes and he washes feet. He reenacts what he's about to do. And so he rises from supper and he does these things. And now I need your help to count with me, all right? Count along with me. He rose from supper. Say one. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin. He washed his disciples' feet, and he wipes them with a towel. Now, why is the number seven significant? In Hebrew, guess what the number for perfection and completeness is? 
Seven. Seven is the number. Now, why is that important? Because John is writing this story 50 years after it happened. Can anybody remember what they had for lunch last Wednesday? 50 years after it happened, John is writing and telling seven steps that happened. He's explaining this in detail as to what happened 50 years ago. You know what happens when you love someone? You remember things like that. I can tell you exactly where my wife and I had our first date. I can tell you where we went, right? I can tell you what I was dressed in. I had my black button-up shirt, I had the wings on the back of it, right? I remember my wife telling me when we were dating and after we were dating, hey, let's do something fun. Let's go through your wardrobe together. <laughs> and taking and getting rid of that black wing shirt that I have, right? And so when you love someone, you remember those details. And so here it is, 50 years after it happens, and John remembers exactly what happened that night. Why is this so impressive? Because the disciples would not dare get on their knees and wash anybody else's feet. You don't do that. That's for slaves to do. But something stuck out for John that he was so impressed that he remembered exactly what happened that night. That here is Jesus as Lord and he's watching his humility the night before and right before he was going to die. Listen to this one commentator. He says, a great leader in the ancient world might, on rare occasions, might stoop to care for a poor person. But to become that poor person was unthinkable. By Jesus taking the towel and wrapping it around his waist, he is now becoming a slave. He is putting on the common garb of a slave. Foot washing was so identified with slave, they were called foot washers. And if anything that Jesus could do before he died, guess what he chose to do? And so he's watching God stoop down to love. And it so moved John that 50 years later, he remembers exactly the seven steps that Jesus does. And so what Jesus is doing is not only is he teaching the disciples about humility, he's actually showing them what it looks like. Now, I want you to imagine this scene 12 times because that's exactly what's going on. He's going around and he's washing each of their dirty, smelly feet. This is God. This is what he's choosing to do before he dies. And so we ask the question, well, what the heck are the disciples thinking in their heads at this time? Well, let's go and see. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet 
but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter responds exactly the way that we would and our world would, which is, why are you washing my feet? Why is a Messiah king stooping down? That's not what kings do. That's not what you do. And so literally, Peter is saying, you, you wash my feet? He couldn't understand what was happening. But what he was doing in that moment right there is he was describing humanity's narrative, which is I do not go low for people. My whole life is on this trajectory right here, and it's a quest to stay on this trajectory right here. I boast in myself, and I exalt myself above other people. Jesus says, you don't understand right now, but afterwards, you will understand. Afterwards, this will make sense to you. Jesus says to Peter, if you don't accept this, then you have no place with me. If we do not accept the humble, the humility of Jesus and what he's going to do, we have no place with him. If we don't accept the humility of what Jesus is doing for us, then we have no place with him to serve him. If you don't accept me washing you, then you can't be a part and you can't love like Jesus. He was not speaking of hygiene. He's speaking of holiness. He's speaking of holiness. But not all of you are clean, though. He knew that in the midst of all this, Judas was going to betray him. And guess whose feet Jesus still washed? Judas. Think of a time in your life when you went low. No, think of a time in your life when you were put low. None of us willingly chooses to go low, but we find ourselves in these situations when we have to go low because somebody has put us low. I remember my last job in the corporate world. I took the first, the first group. My last job was a plethora of sermon stories, right? And I fought God tooth and nail. That company, it, was the, it, was the, it was probably one of the biggest blessings to preaching sermons because I have so many stories from that job. And there was one in particular. So here I am. I get this job. And I am training salespeople remotely. And so once a year, they come out and are actually there at the home office. And so you would think somebody who was working with them all year long, I get to actually meet them. And my boss would purposely keep me from coming in there. Right? She would only have me do menial tasks. And so... I remember one day she, she literally called me to come down to deliver something and then sent me back up again. How do you think that feels being low? I remember playing basketball at LA Fitness here. Talk about going low many times, right? Being beaten many times. So here I am, I'm playing against this guy and he's, he's pretty much beating me pretty badly. And not only is he, is he beating me, he's telling me the whole time and talking the whole time, right? Speaking of humility, how does it feel to go low? We hate it. Don't talk down to me. You think you're better than me? Our flesh absolutely hates, hates, hates 
recoils from anybody making us go low. And so when you see Peter's response, that's exactly the mindset that he has. Messiah kings don't go low. This is not what they do. You wash my feet? Watch what Jesus says, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus puts his outer garment back on. And he says to them, do you understand what I've done to you? I'm your Lord and teacher. And if I've done this for you, what I'm calling you to do is to do this for one another. A servant is not greater than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. But if you do these things, blessed are you. If you go low, in humble service and love, blessed are you. How the heck is God going to make something beautiful out of such a mess? How is God going to make something beautiful out of a mess in the disciples' lives? Out of the mess in this world? Out of the mess of my life? How is he going to make something beautiful? I want you to look at this. I want you to look at the Last Supper. I want you to see how much of a mess this Last Supper is. Right? The disciples, they're fighting with one another over where they're going to sit. And then you've got Peter. Peter's arguing with Jesus, right, over the foot washing. And then later, over Jesus' prediction that he's going to deny him. Judas is literally sitting next to Jesus planning how he's going to betray him. And what John is saying here is John is saying in the midst of this mess right here, which for many of us is like our own family Christmas dinner, right? Isn't Christmas supposed to be such a... Isn't that what the, the songs tell us? How beautiful and wonderful it is? And that's not the reality for many of us. That in the midst of this imperfect dinner... Jesus does something perfect. Perfect. And he does it by listing the steps that Jesus does. Seven perfect steps. What does he do? Jesus gets up from dinner. He takes off his outer garment. Then he goes. He ties a towel around his waist. And he goes and he washes their feet and he dries them with the towel. And then he goes and he puts back on his outer garment. And when you see Jesus do this, what you're watching is Jesus showing exactly what had been prepared from the very beginning. 
What was Jesus doing? By taking off his outer garment, he's taking off the glory of heaven and he's leaving the glory of heaven. He's lowering himself to become a slave and to give his life by doing the lowest thing he could do. He gave his life in the most humiliating way possible, which was the cross. Even the Romans wouldn't do it to their own people because it was too humiliating. And that's what he came and he did. And he died and he rose again and he goes back into heaven and puts back on his glory. Beautiful. Beautiful. The perfection of Jesus is not in a calm, perfect family meal. It's the beauty of how he loves in the midst of a messy world, in the midst of a mess. Why? Because he's come to do what his father has called him to do, which is come into our world. To do what? To die. He gave his life to bring us back home. Humiliate him. He willingly lays down his life so that we could be with him forever and be forgiven of our sins. Remember the one that was to come from Genesis? He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Remember the one in Isaiah? The one that was stricken for our iniquities. Remember in the beginning of John 13, Jesus had come from the Father and was going back to the Father. And there is Jesus hanging on the cross with two criminals, bloodied, broken. The women are grieving. The disciples are scared. The Pharisees are mocking. In the midst of the mess and the most evil, tragic scene in the course of human history, Jesus says, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. Love in the midst of evil by doing what? By Jesus going low. And how does this happen? How does this start? How does God do it? Does God come on a white horse with a sword slaying his enemies? Was he born in a castle to a king and queen? He comes as a what? A baby. The most vulnerable type of human you could choose. And that human is born where? In a manger. Of all the ways God could have chosen to do it, that's how he chose to reveal who he is. And he chose to come that way. That's what Christmas is all about. That's the true Christmas story. And so now, the Apostle Paul when he writes to his letter, his letter to the church in Philippi, and he's explaining to them, this is what he says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Now, I want you to have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours. The reason why you have this is because of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself on the, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Apostle Paul lists seven steps, and it says here, I don't want you just to believe this story. I don't want you just to listen to this story. I want you to live a life in which you reenact this story every single day. Because when you go low, and if you try to find Jesus by continually trying to go high in your life, you won't find him. But if you reenact his journey, you will find Jesus. When you live your life, whether it's with your spouse, with your family, neighbor, coworker, friend, when you continually live your life by taking off your outer garment and tying the towel around your waist, you will find Jesus. And not only will you see his beauty, you will reflect his beauty to the world. Here we are at Christmas. Christmas is the single most important event in human history. As the song says, God with us. He came with us. He came to be with us. And as one author says, God with us, God for us, God bearing our humanity, God one of us, God coming to save us in the fullness of time. This is the time when God took on human flesh and he came in the baby Jesus, born in a manger and with the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. This is the story. This is the Christmas story. This is the true story of Christmas. And so let's, this Christmas season, let's receive and let's give the most beautiful gift ever, Jesus. Let's pray.